Turn with me, turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. As we continue in this wonderful Gospel, it's uh, always amazing to me how God organizes the sermons that He gives us here through His Word. No passage of Scripture is irrelevant. No passage of Scripture is an accident. And it's always the right timing for every passage of Scripture. If you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we praise you and we thank you for your word. And it's always the right time for us to hear what you have for us each week. And this morning is just as relevant. As, as Daniel has come and given his testimony of, of your saving work in his life, he tells us, Lord, of, of the legalism of the tradition he came out of and what a timely witness even in this passage in Matthew 15. And so, God, I pray that you would open our hearts this morning because every one of us here is guilty of what the Pharisees are doing in this text. Father, we, we worship you in our own methods and in our own ways. And our, even in our own intent, we come to you. But God, you show us that that's not right. You show us that you show how to worship. It is through you and through your son, Jesus Christ, through your word that we know the proper attitude and the proper motive and, and the proper way to worship. And so God, speak to us this morning. And I pray, God, that you would show us where we fail you. Convict us, Lord, of our sin, but encourage us where we please you. In Jesus' name, amen. And have a seat. Have you ever dealt with people who know all the answers to all the problems? Some of us may be that. Some of us may just work with people like that. Some of us may have family members like that. I mean, we know people who know all the answers to all the problems. I mean, do you deal with know-it-alls? When someone thinks of himself as wiser than others, this person is truly showing himself or herself, showing the cleverness on their subject. Despite your expertise in a matter, despite your experiences in a matter, this person always knows more than you do. How many of us have been guilty of that? A lot of us. In this passage, I mean, Jesus confronts these Pharisees from Jerusalem. Did you notice that in verse 1? Not just any Pharisees. They were the Pharisees from Jerusalem, the experts. 
And, and he deals with them. He deals with their hypocrisy in their religious tradition. Now, now we might take away from this text the lesson that religious tradition is to be avoided. And that's how some teach this passage. That religious tradition should be avoided. But at the heart of this encounter, I think, is a deeper spiritual issue of authority. It's more, more than it is about religious tradition. I think what Jesus is really showing the Pharisees here is the proper authority rather than the false tradition. And I want us to dig even this a little bit deeper. Imagine if you were going to Jesus and you wanted to instruct him about the ways of God. Some of us are laughing and that's the right response. We laugh, but we tell our Lord too often how to worship. I think we, we we laugh at this idea, but the truth is we're all guilty of this sin. This is a sin. I mean, we tell our Lord how we're going to honor him, and we tell our Lord how we're going to worship him rather than learning with submission from the master himself. And I think that's what is at the heart of this text. So let's take a look at verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And I've got that underlined in my Bible. From Jerusalem. Who were these religious leaders who came to him? And why were they there? Why did they come to Jesus? If you look at the previous chapter of chapter 14, verses 34 through 36, we get the impression that this is uh, Jesus is in the area of the Gennesaret, uh, a very backward, backwater place, um, uh, a very evil place. And, and here these Pharisees and scribes come from Jerusalem to Jesus in this desolate place. By this point in Jesus' ministry, word would have spread throughout the countryside and word would have spread in religious circles about the grand miracle of feeding the 5,000. Remember back um, in, in chapter 14? That was the grandest miracle of all of Jesus' ministry. And so by now we get into chapter 15, the word had spread. The fame had grown. And clearly, these people were following that. Matthew places this narrative about the Pharisees um, and their tradition in this place, in the text, in the gospel, to show the contrast of Jesus against the misguided religious traditions of the day. Now, if the gospel accounts of Jesus reveal who Jesus is, and that's true, the gospels reveal who Jesus is, then this narrative in chapter 15, I think, is meant to show who the Pharisees are in relation to who Jesus is. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, religious leaders based in the holy city would have been important men for sure. I mean, if you're, if you're based out of Jerusalem, you've made it to the pinnacle of your career. Can you imagine? You're not just some religious leader in the backwater synagogue of Nazareth anymore. Now you're in the holy city of Jerusalem. Okay. It'd be about like if you're in the, if you're in the Catholic tradition, you made it to Rome and the Vatican or in the Southern Baptist tradition, you made it to downtown Nashville at the executive board committee building. Something. So these men would have been the elite. They would have been at the highest of their career. And I, I think these folks, as they, they're based in the Holy City and they come to Jesus, I, they're men, I, mean, it's, I think it's because Jesus' ministry had garnered such great attention, these men had to come and see what was going on. 
I mean, the narrative shows us that these Pharisees were not there out of curiosity. I think they were there to inspect, to oversee, to impose their authority. They were know-it-alls. And there they were. Let's look here at verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? That's what their question is. They look to Jesus and they charge him. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. That, in this situation, was what they were all worried about. Your disciples didn't wash their hands, Jesus. They're not following the traditions. Notice of who? The elders. Why were they not following the traditions of us, our, our legal religious system? So whenever the authority of men supersedes the authority of Christ, creative minds will manufacture very inventive ways to worship God. These traditions, quote unquote, may begin with a, a hint or a seed of God's revelation of worship, but then it morphs quickly into something totally foreign to the intended spirit of God's expectations of worship. To the point that you get so worried about whether or not somebody washes their hands or not. It's not just a health question, it's a religious question. The tradition of Moses that these Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking was the act of washing. As often as the case in this, what happening, when religious rituals are invented as additions to God's law, there is always a hint of origin within the word of God. But that originality quickly distorts and morphs into a totally manufactured tradition, a totally manufactured worship method that has nothing to do with God himself. That's what we're seeing here. Now, we look at this and we laugh. But how many of us do the same? The issue here with self-centered worship tradition is that this ritual must always occur or it feels that God is not worshiped. That's the problem here with the Pharisees. If we don't do it this way, then we're not worshiping God. And, and this is the common issue with the know-it-alls. They will bully you if you do not do a thing the way they do it. You're wrong, always wrong, horribly wrong. Actually, you're pretty stupid for not doing it the way I do it. You see, if you do not do something the way they do it or in the manner in which they do it, you are, in this situation, you're a heretic. Who, I mean, who, who, who's the, who's the authority here? The Pharisees, man, have now established themselves as authority. And that's what's revealed here. The know-it-alls are blind to the possibility that they may be the ones doing it all wrong anyway. That's another sign of a know-it-all. They're blind to the fact that they may be wrong. Anybody guilty of that? Some of us in this room are getting awful quiet. I didn't intend that. I'm just, Reading God's word. See, the Mosaic law defended by the Pharisees in this passage, what they're pulling from can be found all throughout the Mosaic law, but, but you can focus in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 25 through 28. And in Leviticus 11, 25 through 28, God commands that anyone who is defiled, in other words, anyone who is dirty should wash. That's in Leviticus. Okay? Leviticus chapter 11, verse 32, this idea of washing goes even further. Any utensil in the home that is defiled or is dirty should be washed. Now, some of us are scratching our head thinking, well, that's just common sense. That's common hygiene. Would you agree? 
but it's part of the Levitical law. We'll find nowhere in the Mosaic law, though, a command to wash hands before eating. But you will find a common theme of washing. So how did it get to this distortion of you're not washing your hands before you eat? Many of the kids hearing this right now may be looking at their mothers with hopeful disdain. (laughs) Although the Mosaic law does not command washing the hands before eating as a form of worship, I think the spirit of the Mosaic law does speak strongly to the practice of outward cleanliness. The commands to wash, I think, were intended by God to guard against every spiritual defilement. Not that we could wash away spiritual demons or anything. We can't wash them away. But you see the imagery here of, of, of having an attitude of cleanliness reflects the attitude of a purified heart. Washing the body, cleaning the living space, even the bedrooms that belong to the teenagers, reflects an attitude of cleanliness and order in the spirit. Yet the pharisaical regulations that are are being expressed here, I think they manifested the act of hand washing as a mandate before eating or that which was eaten would be dishonoring to God. In other words, if you broke bread, if you ate something without washing your hands because you did not wash, you were therefore defiling God or defiling the act of worship toward God. So they took the larger spirit of God's law and applied it through human logic and reasoning to the everyday breaking of bread and eating. Oh, God said you must wash, and if you don't wash now, you're now dishonoring God. Washing the hands became a ritual ceremony more than a connection to the cleansing of the soul. In other words, they were more interested in the outward action than than and less about the inner soul, keeping oneself pure from the defilements of the world. Now, clearly, this is why I so love how the Lord draws things. See, I didn't, I mean, we're just going through the book of Matthew. Now, of course, there's a little bit of a, a future planning of sermons, but nowhere did I know or any of us know that there would be a baptism today of all days as we're looking at this passage about hand washing. See how God works? He's going to teach us something today. But this connection here about hand washing and even the tradition of washing and, and baptism, there is a, there is a transition there from the Old Testament idea of washing to the New Testament idea of baptism. It was a constant flow. It's the same, same meaning. The ritual cleansing of the bab, of the Mosaic law points to today's church and their tradition of baptism. It, why is it that Jesus commands the believer, the new child of God, who is saved and made new by the cleansing of Christ's blood, why is it a command to wash their sins away in the waters of baptism? Does this mean that today, as Daniel comes to baptism, that his sins are somehow literally being washed away? No, those sins have now been atoned for and, and covered by the blood of Christ already. The baptism is an act. It is an act of obedience. It is a, an outward symbol. It is an outward manifestation, a public witness of this is what the Lord has done in me. So see what the Pharisees are doing here. They're taking the, the, the intent, the spirit, the spirit of God's law and making a literal application of God's law in a way that distorts the truth. You see what's happening here? 
It seems that no sin can literally be washed away in water. Why? It's because every time that we wash the body, the body will be standing in. The body will get dirty again. And so washing must occur again and again and again. But baptism is not commanded by Christ over and over and over again. It's once. It's once after a genuine regeneration of one's spirit, one's being. When that occurs as Christ determines alone through the Holy Spirit alone, then and only then are, do we come in obedience to baptism. Baptism is an act of public witness to all who observe that whoever is being baptized is new in Christ, that their sinful past is buried in Christ and their future is now alive in Christ. An eternal future awaits. An eternal life promised by Jesus himself is testified in the act of baptism. That's what this washing, this idea of washing in the Old Testament Mosaic law is pointing to as well. This passage is not about the Mosaic law concerning washing and cleansing alone. This text here in uh, chapter 15, it, it points to something bigger. We know this because of how Jesus responds to this charge from the Pharisees. Remember, their charge is, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now let's look at verses 3 and 4. There's something deeper here than just washing. Jesus responds to these know-it-all charges from the Pharisees who are, remember, where were they from? From Jerusalem. Remember, I, I, whenever I was reading this passage, I couldn't help but remember, uh, was it John Kerry back when he ran for president? Every time he came out, I'm John Kerry and I served in Vietnam. But these, these, these fairs, I, they were from Jerusalem. Within the, Jesus responds to them with an example of the command of how to honor your father and your mother. So children and teenagers in the room, honor your mom by cleaning your room and washing your hands. There are two things here that Jesus addresses in the charge from the Pharisees. And both of these things point to the heart of the issue. At issue was not the washing of the hands before eating bread, nor the washing of the cups and the plates in the house. At issue was the proper washing of the heart toward a right attitude of honor. That's at the core here. How one honors one's mother and father in their elderly years reveals how one properly honors God the Father. Let's take a look here how Jesus answers in verses 3 and 4. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Verse 4, For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Now you're saying, you're scratching your head again. Oh, wait a minute. These Pharisees challenge Jesus about hand washing and he responds about honoring your father and mother. What kind of a rebuttal is that? Jesus is smart. Can we just understand? He was wiser than these Pharisees. He's wiser than us. What's he doing here? In verse four, he's, he's citing two different uh, commandments. Exodus 22, verse 12. This is the fifth commandment of the 10 commandments. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We teach this to all of our children in Bible studies. And he also cites Exodus 21, verse 17. And here is the penalty for not honoring your father and mother. Whoever curses his father and his mother shall be put to death. Jesus points out to these, 
these people, these Pharisees, these know-it-alls, he points out the unquestionable commands of God in the Mosaic law. The penalty for dishonoring or disobeying one's mother or father was clearly harsh. What was the penalty for dishonoring your mother and your father? Whoever curses his father and his mother shall be put to death, Exodus 21, 17. Pretty harsh. Yet these Pharisees were too worried about hand washing. And Jesus is pointing out their misplaced priorities. He, he's exposing their hypocrisy here. Now look here at verses 5 through 6. He says, but you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Jesus is pointing out to these Pharisees and these scribes, you care more about tradition than you care about the word, the law, the intended spirit of God's commands. He's pointing out their hypocrisy. If you were genuine in your insistence on washing of hands and obeying God's law, then why do you do this to your parents? This is an intended thing here that Jesus is pointing out. It's amazing how the know-it-alls can easily be caught up in their own trap. Jesus is showing that he's trapping them in their argument. Truth will always show the error in an argument. While the Pharisees charge Jesus of breaking the Pharisaical tradition, Jesus, what's he doing? Jesus is uncovering how they break the law where many of the religious elite were guilty of this. Many of the religious elite were guilty of dishonoring their father and their mother. Oh, I'm in religious service, mom and dad. I'm sorry, but all of what I have must go to the Lord. Anyone ever heard that before? I mean, it, it, it was apparent And it was not uncommon for someone in a high religious office to be so proud of their status that they excused their family responsibilities because they were pious. I'm too busy serving the Lord, mom and dad. I can't help you today. How many of us have been guilty of that? Now, these Pharisees from Jerusalem would not have struggled financially. Let's make sure we understand this. I think we can imply here that if they are at that level of their career and they are in Jerusalem, they would have financial means. You can assume that. The Jewish tradition cared for the leadership of the temple and the synagogues very well. If one was called to serve in the seat of Jewish tradition in Jerusalem to serve there, certainly they would have had financial means to care for family, especially their aging parents. So there's no excuse. Verse 5, what would what you would have gained from me, this is what they say to their parents, what you would have gained from me is given to God. It's an excuse. I mean, God obligates us to care for our parents in their golden years. But he must be more pleased with me. This is what they're saying to themselves. God wants me to take care of my parents, but God must be more pleased with me if I'm serving in his temple. In other words, look at how important I am, mom and dad. Now, verse 6, Jesus connects their hypocrisy. They charge Jesus of breaking the what? Tradition of the elders. And Jesus reveals how they are breaking God's great command to care for your family responsibilities. Honor your father and your mother, and your days will be long. Isn't that one of the Ten Commandments? 
And what's Jesus saying? I mean, he's revealing how they break one of the greatest of God's commandments. So these these hypocrites, these know-it-alls, they actually do not know the true meaning of God's law. They act like they do. They hold themselves as if they do. But now Jesus is showing how they don't know what they say they know. They don't practice the truth of God's law in their hearts. Mark chapter 7 actually tells us more about this. I mean, if you're taking notes, Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 13 is a parallel passage to the Matthew account. And Matthew, and Mark chapter 7 verses 11 and 12 actually gives us more detail in this exchange. Verse 11 of Mark 7 says this, But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So it must have gone much deeper than just, uh, well, I'm just going to ignore my responsibilities. It almost implied here that when you come into this level of religious tradition and responsibility, if you claim Corbin, then you are no longer permitted to give that material wealth away because you have now dedicated that to God. The idea of Corban here is the idea of declaring that material wealth is dedicated to God. And if you dedicate that material wealth to God, then your parents are no longer welcome to it. See how the religious tradition even went more twisted there? Because if you dedicate your material wealth to God, does God not command that you use your material wealth to care for your parents? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that would make sense. But in human logic, they make excuses. So the Pharisaical tradition went beyond this. Anyone who claimed their material wealth as Corban could avoid the commandment to care for your parents. Corban literally means devoted to God. And so this rabbinical loophole that Jesus exposes here denied aging parents the resources they needed. They didn't have Social Security from the government. They didn't have 401k retirement plans and pensions. They depended on their kids. And you were responsible to care for them. Be nice to see that return to normal Christian tradition, wouldn't it? Right? As Jimmy, Joe is smiling and Jimmy's going, he's turning his head. I'm not going to take care of him. (laughs) Jimmy, you need to take care of Joe in his old age. He's not there yet, but he'll get there, right? That's important. Uh, whenever we're so eager to keep the laws of men, to keep the laws and traditions of men, and we care less about attention on keeping the laws of God, in other words, in other words, following the spirit of the law, we're held as sinning against God and His law. Because we want to look at God's law as if it is a literal thing, but there is a spirit behind the law. The spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. And the Pharisees were more focused on the letter of the law to the point that they distorted the law to human logic and it just totally distorted God's original intent and spirit. (laughs) See what we're saying here? And Jesus is pointing out their hypocrisy. You're more worried about whether people wash their hands and you're less worried about taking care of your parents. That's, I mean, that's pretty in their face, don't you think? (laughs) He's showing their hypocrisy. So in verse 9 of Matthew 15... What does he say? Actually, let's, let's start in verse 7 through 9. 
You hypocrites, he says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Remember back in verse two, the Pharisees and the scribes were so worried about the form of worship. Yet Jesus was pointing out to them, even from the prophet Isaiah, in vain do they worship me. Your act of worship, your emphasis on twisted human logic causes the act of worship to be vain. Now that, that should cause us to really pause and be humble, be broken to say, are we guilty of that? Do we take the worship of our Lord to such an extreme that it is vain in his eyes. The act of worship that the Pharisees demanded was worthless, a breath in the wind. When the will of man supersedes the will of God, the result is vanity in worship, worthlessness. Whenever we allow ourselves to wander beyond the limits of the word of God, the more labor and anxiety we display in worship, the heavier is the condemnation we actually place upon ourselves and the condemnation we place upon others by expecting them to obey our our rules. Inventive religious worship results in an oppressive weight. See, there is a freedom in Christ that the new believer really experiences, yet... Religious tradition can weigh them down. And that freedom, that that attitude of a child that Jesus really appreciates in the new believer gets squashed. This is what the Pharisees are doing. So what are a few examples of godly worship as expected by our Lord? I mean, what is it that Jesus is pointing to here? Tradition will still be a part of worship. Okay, let's just imagine, let's just agree with that. We are singing traditional hymns, but we're also singing new hymns in the tradition of the old hymns. Make sense? And the hymns that we focus on here in, at Sovereign Grace are those that have proven the, the one. Well, one they were penned with the intent of honoring God in His Word. And so that's the spirit of that tradition. That's why we continue it here. What does Jesus teach? Tradition will still be a part of the process, but where the spirit of God-honoring tradition versus the poison of the self-honoring tradition becomes a clash, we've got to go with the God-honoring tradition over the self-honoring tradition because the self-honoring tradition is poison. The God-honoring tradition is life-giving. Amen? Amen? God permits believers to have outward ceremonies in worship. He gives us the act of creation. We have a creative ability as human beings, a creative ability that I'm sorry, cats don't have. (laughs) And cat lovers hate when you point out that truth. You see my point? We have, we are the unique creatures of God's created order that can create. And I'm not talking about just reproduction. I'm talking about we can create. We have artistic flair. We can make things. 
And God has given us that gift. And he intends for us to use that in our worship of him. And see, God does not tolerate the mixing up of the proper authority of worship in, the, in while we create worship traditions by contrasting with the expectations of God's word. He gives us this creative ability to, to worship well. You know, the, the, the word of God gives us guidelines of the attitude of worship. But you know what? If you look back through church tradition and church history, there's a lot of different forms that are all God-honoring. But at the heart of those, at the spirit of those, it worships God as He intends to be worshipped because it reflects what the Word says. We get so caught up in styles and methods that we forget the spirit of worship that's laid out in God's Word. That's what Jesus is talking about. You see, worship style is freely allowed in as much as God grants us, again, this ability to create. We are creative creatures in the imago Dei, the image of God. Music style varies with culture and time. Preaching styles will actually vary with culture and time. Yet both must be grounded in God's Word. How it is expressed will vary but at the spirit, at the core of that worship, if it is honoring to God and it and it follows the word here, then we're good. If we distort God's word and we insist that people wash their hands before they come in the front door, you know, we could stand there at the door as people come into God's house with a bowl of water and say, here, wash your hands before you come in or you're not welcome. Now, that would be foolish, wouldn't it? You see the point? So it's more about the heart than it is about the letter of the law. Jesus demanded, let's think about this, and we'll close with this. In John chapter 4, Jesus demanded of the Samaritan woman at the well to worship in spirit and truth. He says in verse 23 of John chapter 4, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit, if you want to say, is emotional but holy. Truth being reasonable and logical. Understanding. Harmonized together. In other words... Bring your experience of worship into conformity with what is true about who God is. Bring the experience of worship, the forms of worship, the methods of worship, the creativity of worship that must conform within what is true about God. Not about us, not about our feelings, not about our comfort levels. We're not here to worship us. We're not here to feel good about ourselves. We are here to worship our Creator God and our Savior, His Son, Jesus Christ. Let your spirit, in other words, let your you realize we all have a spirit, we have an inner self. Let that be authentically awakened and moved by the truth of the gospel. And that will naturally, by God's design, be reflected in worship. If your heart is transformed, if you are, if your spirit is authentically awakened to the truth of the gospel, your worship will be genuine. Amen.
if it is not authentically awakened, your worship will be a waste of time, according to what Jesus says here. I'm just going to let that kind of lay, let you kind of ponder that in your heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we, we praise you. Oh, we thank you. Your, your word here that this encounter between these Pharisees and Jesus are, it's a, it's a common narrative in the gospels and we, we read it often, Lord, but sometimes we forget that maybe we're just as guilty as the Pharisees, that, that rather than coming and worshiping as you intend us to worship, we, we're so worried about the form or we're worried about, um, the legality of it all or, the expectations of those who will not see us in worship, whatever it is that's holding us in a in a legalistic for, uh, mold, Lord, I pray that you would remind us in this text that Jesus is pointing out a very important point here, that, that the heart of worship is a transformed life. Dear God, you're, you, you have redeemed us through the blood of your Son, and you, dear God, have awakened our spirit to love you and to honor you correctly as, as you desire and, and deserve. And so, God, that is how we worship. We depend on you in our worship of you. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would cause the truth of this text to just sink into our soul. That we would honor the spirit of your word truthfully, genuinely, and not be so caught up in the legal side of what ifs and am I, should I or shouldn't I. It, draw us to you in the love and the grace that you have and cause us, Father, to respond to you in worship in the same way. Lord, cause us to just be so enraptured with your love and your grace. Cause us to love you so much, Lord, that we just can't help but worship. I pray, God, that today would be a day of honoring you. And as we come to the table here this morning to worship, as your son Jesus has commanded us to come to remember his sacrifice for us, cause this time to just overwhelm us with a love of you that we just cannot explain. Let this time of, of worship at the Lord's table not be a ritual. Let this time, Lord, be a time of honoring to your name. Cause us to love you so much that we are just, our spirit is just uplifted to you. Lord, we, we ask this because we're not able to do this on our own. We, we depend on you. So Lord, let this time be for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah.